Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My very special guest today is Nikki Costello. Very special because I actually consider Nikki to be one of my teachers. I take her class fairly regularly. Nikki Costello is a certified Iyengar yoga teacher. She has been teaching yoga for 22 years and was previously certified in Jiva Mukti yoga and Anusara yoga. For eight years, she taught exclusively for the Siddha Foundation as a Hatha yoga and meditation teacher. As part of the organization, she taught Hatha yoga in retreats and events in North America, South America, Europe, India, and China. It was during this time that she began cultivating a practice of meditation and deepened her study of yogic scriptures and philosophical texts. She lives in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and teaches public classes at Kula Yoga in Tribeca in Williamsburg and Yoga Shanti. She maintains a well-recognized private practice in New York City, training and guiding individuals on all levels of their health and well-being. Nikki is very passionate about sharing her study and practice of yoga. She has created several unique educational opportunities for yoga students, which include the teacher's practice, the mentor practice, the sutra practice, and the enrichment practice. She continues to lead retreats and workshops all over the world, and in 2013 to 2014 was a contributing editor at Yoga Journal, writing the magazine's basics column. So hello, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jacob. It's so nice to be here with you. So I wanted to start out with a, a fairly simple but a, a, fair, a fairly um, deep question or, or a, a broad but, um, a but deep question, which is, what is yoga? <laughs> what is yoga? The uh, word that comes to mind for me is integration. Mm. In fact, the quality of integrity is one that I hold to be most uh, important in my own practice and study of yoga. Integration, integrity, uh, that which allows me to live my life bringing all parts of it together. Mm. When I started to practice yoga I thought yoga was this act of going to a class and doing a series of postures uh, in a particular way, in a particular method. And, and it's absolutely okay if we start our journey of yoga and yoga is about how we're moving our body. Over time, I understood that what was happening for me as I began to explore the Hatha Yoga asanas is that during practice, thoughts would arise, memories would come to the surface. Uh, at the end of practice, I would fall into a deep state of relaxation and peacefulness. And so over time, I began to see that in fact, these physical postures that I was doing were leading me into a space inside myself where I began to make connections, uh, connections to my past, connections in the present, and started to understand that yoga could be this practice of making myself whole. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's really beautiful. So you've started to talk about it a little bit, but I would love to hear um, a little bit about your life and particularly perhaps some of the key moments where seeds were planted, the beginning when you first encountered yoga, 
and um, and how your practice kind of evolved over the years. Mm. Uh, I began to think about something a little over a week ago, and mm. I was uh, speaking to a group of students in California, actually, and I had entered the room where where I would be teaching, and it was a room that had mirrors. Uh, there were mirrors on two of the four walls of mm. that space. And the first thing I did when I entered the space was ask someone who was in the room and knew the space if we could cover the mirrors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, sure enough, they had you know, a beautiful sliding system of <laughs> curtains, and um, within moments... Uh, that space then was and felt uh, warmer mm-hmm. and more um, cave-like. Yeah. The reason that this moment has been poignant for me is that what set in motion was a reflection on my own past mm-hmm. over the last week as I described to the students why I had done this and why I had asked that this be done. As a young person, I started uh, dancing in, in, in my childhood years and through my teenage years. And it was something that I loved. I loved moving my body. Mm. I hated walking into a room of mirrors. Mm. And I hated it because I never felt good. I always felt as though the way in which I was seeing myself in the reflection, it felt incongruent Mm. to how I felt inside. And so it was this experience of always looking and composing myself in a way so that I could change that reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that meant as a teenage girl um, was that I began to walk down a path of extreme um, behaviors around um, eating and and diet. Um, I began to hide myself in terms of the ways that I moved or dressed because what was happening simultaneously was that I was doing something that I loved, but I was doing it with a lot of... um, with, with a lot of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And so that um, was this impression that, um, that I then spent some years after I um, moved from Chicago to attend New York University here. Mm. And I made a choice when I attended New York University to, to go to the theater department in, instead of the dance department. And quite honestly, that shift meant I would be practicing in a black box theater as opposed to a studio with mirrors. Mm -hmm. And that, I would say, was one of the first times where I began to explore the inner life of myself and could do that through the study of theater um, and at the same time, there were so many modalities that we were able to study in the theater department, including yoga and Alexander Technique and um, mask work and ways in which I could 
allow myself to start to experience what I consider to be a true feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then started to seek out what my true nature really felt like. Mm-hmm. So that happened prior to really taking my first yoga class. Mm-hmm. I considered that the beginning of my study of yoga. Wow. What a great story. I actually really resonate with your choice to cover the mirrors. I, I also find uh, I didn't have the same necessarily experience with mirrors as you did, but but I, I, I've always felt like it was um, there was something problematic about being solely concerned about the the outer form and and by facing the mirrors having students face mirrors it seems like oftentimes we might be perpetuating certain you know neurotic tendencies about our personal image that are you know perpetuated by society do you, is that part of also why you choose to cover the mirrors or is it purely from a personal experiential standpoint what I think is that over time I understood um, the philosophical mm-hmm. underpinnings of that. What just flashed uh, in my memory as as you were speaking was that, in fact, I had started to practice yoga, and uh, I had started to practice at the time uh, at a gym. And that was the place where I took my first yoga class. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was a room with mirrors. Yeah. However, the subject took me inside of myself. So what began to shift from being a young dancer in tights and leotard and exploring my form by looking outside of myself, the actual practice of yoga, the way that it was instructed, um, the way in which I was able to look and connect to my body reversed Mm -hmm the flow of attention. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting about um, mirrors is that they will reflect our perception. Yeah. Right? And so the, um, the, the philosophical understanding that I have around that is that if I am living and practicing in such a way that I connect to the truth of the teachings where the senses of perception, the way that I'm seeing, hearing, uh, feeling, smelling, you know, tasting, where when the senses are actually withdrawn or turned toward the source, then we have from that experience of resting in the source of the senses, uh, an opportunity to begin to perceive Mm -hmm. truthfully, Mm -hmm. to perceive our nature. And then looking outside doesn't have the same jarring or um, uncomfortable Mm. effect. Mm. So... You know, I I encouraged the students uh, in that class to look within, and that became an opportunity to not be reliant upon how you see yourself outside, but mm-hmm. how you begin to sense yourself inside. So that's interesting because, you know, you you 
you represent a tradition, a Yangar yoga, which is very much a, is probably the most, has the most technique, you know, of perhaps other modalities and is very technically precise. And, and so there's, it's interesting that you come from a ba- dance background because dance also has this technical precision. So I'm, I'm curious how in your own teaching you balance this, what you're talking about, this very kind of internal experiential um, approach with, you know, the very real aspect of the very, very real technical precision that's, that is oftentimes um, uh, approached from an external vantage point because we see our bodies, we see that we, you know, the hip is off center or we're this, the relationship of one limb to another is not uh, in relation to perhaps what the Iyengar tradition is, is, is teaching. So what is there, um, how do we balance that? You know, how do we avoid getting overly obsessed with the, kind, the alignment and losing the inner uh, love. <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean that. Yeah. Um, why are we practicing? So again, you could, you could, you could very easily su- superimpose onto Iyengar yoga. Oh, Iyengar yoga is a method of of that of precision and discipline, and the form is more important. And right. you could easily superimpose. Mm-hmm that perception onto the method itself. Yes, the method asks us to observe. Mm -hmm. Observing in neutrality, observing so as to see fully is very different than observing judgmentally or observing critically so as to correct or... um, even scold Mm -hmm. (laughs) ourselves in terms of how we're doing something. And so it's a very, for me, when I observe a student, that actually is uh, creating a pathway inside myself to help me see myself with more love. Mm -hmm. Because I know that when I look at students in the room and I see their bodies... I'm not critical of who they are. Yeah. I'm not critical of looking at that shape and saying this is bad or this is wrong or this has to change. It's more about inviting the student into an exploration of if you look at your feet and see that there is a a rolling toward one side of your foot or a twist in one of your knees. Can you adjust that? Can you work with that in such a way where the experience that you then have inside yourself is one of feeling um, connected Mm -hmm. or grounded? Does that adjustment in your body lead you toward an experience of wholeness? Mm-hmm. And and so it has everything to do with what motivates both the teacher and the student in that moment of coming together. Are you practicing for the love of it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the joy of it? 
That, uh, that's interesting, and I think it actually segues well into something that we were talking about just before we started the interview, which is this, um, the relationship and the practice between knowledge and experience, or what is um, termed sometimes jnana and vijnana. And, and in relation to what we're talking about, although we were talking about it more kind of about the philosophical side and the scholarship, but it seems like it also maps well into what we're saying because what I hear you saying is that there is there is the technical side and we can get lost in one or the other, right? We can get lost in in all experience and, and kind of, you know, not be very rigorous about the knowledge or we can get too wrapped up in the in all the precision and all the detail and then forget that we're supposed to be that these are sort of guideposts towards having an experience so what is the kind of relationship then and you're already talking about it i guess but maybe if you could unpack a little more this distinction and you offered a really nice um uh, quote to me before and i'll let you share it so if you want to maybe talk a little bit about that the quote that Jacob's referring to is is something that uh, really came up into the surface of my mind a few weeks ago uh, in my own practice, and that is that knowledge can be acquired. Wisdom is attained. Mm-hmm. And if I were to comment on this, you know, uh, statement that I'm making, it's that we are now living at a time and in a time where we can seek out the answers to questions we have, uh, by going Google to Google (laughs) by Googling it. Uh, we can, and have access to resources, be it podcasts, Mm -hmm. uh, online courses. Uh, We have accessibility now to teachers that were buried inside academia and have come out to share the scriptures and the teachings in more public ways. Um, We have the capacity to get on planes and to travel across the world to do a course with, uh, you know, our teacher in India, almost on a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. And so there is this... um, Ability that we have now to go where we want to go, find where we want to find, acquire what it is that we want uh, to answer the immediate question that we have. However, there is nothing that fulfills for me or satisfies that thirst or hunger. greater than the Mm self-practice. And by that I mean when we are on the mat or when we are seated for a practice of pranayama or meditation, when we take ourselves through um, the very steps that we hear or learn from our teachers in class, when we do it on our own in those moments, what arises then is what we remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from what we remember, what we really understand. And then maybe when we do it and we recognize, oh, I got this feeling going, but it doesn't quite feel the same 
you know, that it felt when my teacher took me through it. So what am I missing? Mm-hmm. So what happens then when you practice on your own is you start to recognize, okay, I have this feeling, I have this memory, I can reproduce this much, I can get back to that, to, to, to that inner experience and then there's still more. So what happens is our ears open, our senses open, we go back to class the next time, and we listen from that space inside that's asking the question, well, how is it going to feel like that again, that sense and that sensation where everything was connected? So then the way we receive information, the way we receive the teacher's instruction the next time is integrated or layered upon the question that we cultivated within ourselves Mm. from our experience. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to the mat and we add that. So I consider that to be this balance that comes between the, you know, the, the, the acquisition of knowledge or information, uh, in relationship to, in dialogue with, what arises as our own inner wisdom Mm -hmm. and it requires practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've really, I mean, you're in your own history, you've been involved with, um, uh, two, um, two communities or two traditions that really, uh, really do emphasize the, the relationship between these two aspects of the practice that you're talking about. Um, one being your time at city yoga and then also with, uh, with a Yengar and um and so you know in both of these communities the 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 experience of the student teacher relationship is very strong um or the emphasis on it is rather strong and so i would love to hear you speak on that um especially in a time where it seems like this relationship is dissolving somewhat a lot of people really are kind of taking the I can do this on my own sort of road or maybe there seems to be just less teachers available of this kind of um, you know guru status or you know um, master teacher status so um, and also maybe based on you know the the very real experience of trauma around controversy in gurus, there's this hesitation to actually engage in that relationship. So I know that's sort of, a, there's a lot there that I just sort of threw in together, but, um, but if you want to talk a little bit about the student teacher relationship. I, uh, I'm going to go back a little bit farther okay. than the practice of yoga. And I find that, um, this controversy that you speak of, the the stories that we're hearing, the distrust, um, the whole idea of of falling from a pedestal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it it does affect me deeply, mm-hmm. and it affects me when I see it or read about it. I find myself. Uh, exploring both sides of those relationships um, because because as a student of yoga, uh, I have teachers, and as a teacher of yoga, I have students so truly you're we are we are all representing both sides, especially now that there are so many 
students that, that long to teach and go along the path of teacher. When I say I'm going back a little bit further, I'll, I'll, I'll link again to this experience that I had when I was uh, studying at the Stella Adler Conservatory of Acting in New York City. I uh, had a master teacher there. Um, Stella Adler taught, and I had some opportunity to be with her, and then the her closest student went on to teach, um, and her name was Alice Winston. Mm-hmm. And I had four years to study with her. And I tell the story with so much love and affection. The first moment I ever stepped up on the stage in this black box mm-hmm. theater space, I opened my mouth to speak the monologue that I had prepared. And I can assure you, I got a syllable out (laughs) before she threw up her arms and said, stop speaking, you have nothing to say. And, (laughs) and, And there I was, you know, on a stage by myself, with all of my peers um, in a circle around me. And all I experienced inside was this warm, Mm. actually really hot, probably it was more than warm, this sensation like I was melting inside. Mm. And it, it was different than being embarrassed it was actually as if she had in that moment struck at the very heart of something in me where i examined why didn't she why didn't she let me even say more than one word mm-hmm. what did i do walking up to the stage standing there and begin that that gave myself away mm-hmm. and she began to ask me questions about my preparation. And I recognized in that questioning where I had slacked off. <laughs> and in that, in, in that exchange, in her inquiry, in her questioning me, she was also showing me mm. how to question myself, mm-hmm. how to prepare myself. And I, that was it. I never said anything more that day. I got off the stage. And she went on to say, and this is, of course, before, um, before we started using the 10,000 hours uh, <laughs> analogy, 10,000 hours to master something. It, it, is that a thing? It, yeah, it oh, is a thing. I we can heard that we, we we can look more at that. But she had said at that moment, it will take you at least ten years before you have any idea what I'm talking about. Wow! And was she right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And ten years later, right? I was in a similar situation. Mm. 
though it was in a yoga environment. And I had already begun teaching yoga. I actually started teaching yoga um, in, in my last year of college. Oh, wow. And I recognized in that moment that I had fully understood the questions that she had asked me. Mm. And by the time I graduated and did the final performance um, in, in the theater piece that we did, she came to me after the performance and hugged me and said, you got it, you got that character. And I remember in that moment thinking, okay, <laughs> I don't need anything else. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I even did it seeking approval it wasn't that I did it as if I was trying to show her that I knew. It was that the teaching that she gave me led me to a place where I could create myself. Mm. Now, I wouldn't wanted to have done that without a teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is where I feel like I know for myself, I have teachers. I have a teacher I had the opportunity to study with BKS Iyengar, with mm -hmm. Guruji, before he passed, and have continued to have the opportunity to study with Gita Iyengar and Prashant Iyengar. I want to have teachers, mm -hmm. and I want to be in a state and a place of receptivity where when I go to India and I put my mat down in that space and I am the student and my teachers are on the platform that they can see the part of me that I can't see myself yet. Mm -hmm. That they can, from that vantage point, uh, guide and instruct and ask those questions so that I can go home and practice and utilize those questions to ask myself, in fact, am I being true? Mm -hmm. Am I being responsible? Am I owning my own learning process? Yeah. So I'm certain that there are some that could get it on their own, it may take longer or they may have the inclination right now at this time where it all just makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's not my path. Yeah. Well, and what's really interesting about what you're saying, actually, and I, and I love what you're saying, is that, you know, a lot, a lot, I think some of the misunderstanding or, or some of the ideas that circulate about um, guru-student relationships is is this idea that you must be subservient, that there's some kind of um, hierarchy where you are, you know, servile to this grand guru, and that's kind of the nature of the relationship. But what I hear you saying is that actually it's through the relationship with the teacher that you actually become independent in your practice. That there's a there's a um, it's not it's not that you are um, surrendering all of your you know your entire practice to this figure, but that, but that to stand grounded in your, um, in the experience of your practice, um, 
it 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 really is it's a result of of having this this profound relationship and it's not a it's not a relationship of 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 subservience or or power in that sense does that make sense it it absolutely makes sense and uh i'll come back again to this uh relationship between guru and disciple between mm-hmm. teacher and student uh it starts with a question. Mm-hmm. So Parvati asks Lord Shiva, mm-hmm. what is yoga? Mm-hmm. This is how we started this interview. Mm-hmm. Parvati asks, what is this secret? And out of love for her, he begins to discourse this is what yoga is, mm. or this is what you could begin to look for, or what do you see? What do you notice? You know, this exchange of asking the question and listening for the response is at the very heart of the teacher-student relationship. Mm-hmm. It is a, a practice in teaching of responsiveness. Mm-hmm. So a teacher can go into the room with an idea. Here's what we'll focus on today. Here's what I have planned or prepared to teach, which might have been shaped around what the teacher saw Mm -hmm. the week before or what is happening in the world or what is the weather like Mm -hmm. today. So it's a responsiveness to the elements, nature, humanity, uh, action, and watching the action of the student that draws forth from the teacher that which can begin to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the student is independent. However, there is an interdependence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't feel for myself that it would be truthful to say, I can do this on my own. Right. What what can we do on our own? Right. The teachings themselves are the embodiments mm-hmm. of. Uh, I'll, I'll say it another way: the the teachings have the experience and the energy and and the form and the embodiment of that which has been passed on and given and shared and received over and over and over again, that itself is Mm -hmm. an interdependence. Yeah, yeah. So when I receive a teaching from my teacher, it's my responsibility to hold that teaching in my awareness as I'm walking through the day, as I'm preparing my breakfast, as I'm you know, encountering uh, a group of students 
it's my responsibility to hold that and say, how is this true now? Mm. What does this mean to me? In what ways do I understand this? And in what ways uh, is this eluding? Mm-hmm. And by asking more questions, right. that answer arises inside. Mm. So I, I have a question then that arose sort of in this um, in this explanation that you're giving or discussion around, you know, it's the practice starting with a question. Do you think that the the questioning is constitutive of the experience of yoga? In other words, do we ever arrive at an answer and like there we are, you know, transcendent? Or is is you know, along with the flux of life and the changeable nature of existence, is there also just this perpetual questioning that we're always in the flow of? Or do we ever arrive? Does that make sense? Well, I haven't arrived yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't fully answer that. And, and when I say I haven't arrived yet, I mean to a finality. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one of the reasons why... I could sit here today, you know, 20 plus years uh, after I started teaching and started practicing yoga is because is because um, I have both not arrived yet and I've arrived many times. Mm, mm. And I feel like the arriving many times is that it's like, you know, opening opening a door and stepping into a new place. Mm. And you're like, I've arrived. <laughs> and you see everything for the first time. Yeah. And, and you go back again, you return, and you remembered it a certain way. And then you go, no, no, I, wasn't that over there? Or, and then you see it another time. No, we return to physical places over and over again, especially the place where we go and study and practice or a familiar place in our neighborhood that we like to go to. There's a way in which... We arrive each time, and we see, and there's familiarity, and there's also, it's also new, new. every time. Yeah. And I feel like the arriving, the, the ING, is that, in the arriving, is that I'm still here because it works. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because those arrivals those 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 stepping into to another part of myself is continuously answering the question what is yoga mm. oh this is also me mm-hmm. or this is also a part of me and so the arriving is again more integration more a sense of wholeness less of myself is obscure to myself mm-hmm. More of myself is seen. So the arriving is continuous, and we arrive, and then there's still more. Mm. Now, my understanding, which I guess is limited, right, from, from where I am today, is that if it feels as awesome as it does in me right now to have a flash of recognition... I can only imagine that when that recognition is constant, mm-hmm. that that becomes then the state of 
the enlightened experience where all is seen mm-hmm. through that perception yeah. without the mere distortions, mm-hmm. without the, the mental or emotional or, you know, sort of bizarre <laughs> spins that we can put on things that are absolutely in relationship to our past, our habits, our conditioning, so that we practice again and again so that that perception is such that we recognize something for as it really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hearing um, this term, I guess, pro- pro- correct me if I'm uh, um, uh, um, pronouncing it wrong, pratyabhinya, which is a term from the Shaivite tradition that translates as recognition. recognition. In fact, there's a whole recognition school of Shaivism. Um, is that kind of the the experience that you're referring to? I I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to um, for myself. I like to study scriptural texts mm-hmm. and find ways in which I understand them in simple everyday moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for instance, today, when you walked in the door, Jacob, <laughs> you know, hi. And we haven't seen each other in a few weeks. And there's a moment where we recognize that we've come together. We recognize, and I'm using the word recognize because, yes, of course, we've come together. Now we're in the same space. But the feeling of Jacob, hi, you know, you look you look good, you look bright. It's like that's for me that recognition, that that recognizing, that part of me that is in that moment totally present and seeing you is what it feels like for myself in the practice of meditation when I recognize my mind dipping into the source of light, Mm -hmm. into the source of uh, purity, (laughs) unobstructed. Mm. And so... When we walk down the street and bump into someone that we haven't seen in a while, there is a recognition. And if we could just capture that moment of embrace, that moment of seeing, that moment where it's like all of our senses have come to embrace, you know, this, this, this person, this being that's in front of us, if we could harness mm. the essence of that moment for me that's recognition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that is my experience of God Mm. of the self it's that simple and precious and extraordinary Mm -hmm. And it's simply seeing each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
That's so beautiful. And and actually, you perfectly. I was I, the whole time you were speaking. I was like, I wanted to move this into a discussion about about your notion of God and how you see God. And 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 I'm really glad glad you took it there. Um, so just to kind of maybe go a, a little deeper or to to um, open that up a bit. So the experience of recognition, if I'm hearing you correctly, it happens all the time, correct? But it's happening in every sort of moment of seeing. But when we are having this more metaphysical experience of recognition, you know, the deepest form of recognizing God, essentially, what is it that we're seeing? The way in which I'm hearing you is that when I first heard the word God, Mm -hmm. it was nondescript. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, God was the father of Christ. Right. It was an yeah. Italian Catholic mm-hmm. girl, you know, go, who went to church on Sundays yeah. and and loved ritual. So I loved the experience of going to God's house. Mm-hmm. And that's how I understood it as a child. And that experience of going to God's house meant a space that was sacred, ritual, listening to teachings, Mm -hmm. spending time in silence, 
and sitting with my family. Mm-hmm. Now, those things I can apply to my life every day mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And God then becomes a relationship mm-hmm. between the way in which I am able to be with myself and experience sacredness and family, Mm -hmm. love, Mm -hmm. silence, Mm -hmm. ritual, practice, and the teachings. Mm. So the form of God that I understood and was brought up in was something that, uh, as a teenager, I began to question the form. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't question that form because it doesn't change anything Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. What changed was that I recognized that from that form, I found other forms. Yeah. And that being in the body and practicing asanas, they became forms. Mm -hmm. For that feeling inside that was indescribable, for that sensation of, of, of connection that the form allowed me to enter. So I don't think or perceive of God as something other than that inner experience, uh, that energy of life that brings forth all that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you went from... um an experience of God that was in a particular form to an experience of God that was the source of all form? Is that a good way to I put it? I think that's a... Yeah, I think that that, that it's... Um, that it can be said in that way. Uh, what I see around me is um, that the nature of humanity is to look outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that we want to be connected to all these different forms. The form of, you know, where where we work and what we do. Um, the form of, you know, who our friends are or what social group we're connected to. You know, there's a way in which all of those different forms, you know, support how we want to cultivate and create our life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've made a choice to live in Brooklyn. It's, this is what it looks like. This mm-hmm. is this form. This is what, you know, I'm drawn to. Uh, and so this reality of seeing all of these different forms is, I think, more aligned with our preferences mm-hmm. 
like what we're drawn to, what what has the potential or the possibility to to move our spirit to where we want to go. What is true for me is that uh, the forms are not what I'm dependent on mm-hmm. <laughs> because we can make choices to move toward what we're drawn to without believing that that form is going to give us what we need mm-hmm. or what we want. So it's this very interesting dance mm-hmm. between the way in which, uh, because I am going to come back to, to asana and the practice of hatha yoga, which, which is what became the form of love for me, mm-hmm. something that I loved. I loved exploring the body in this way, shapes in this way. It completely transformed my relationship with movement, with my body, with the way that I felt about myself because the forms themselves were allowing me to enter that which is awareness, that which is in, intelligent, mm-hmm. that which is um, the, the, the energy behind or within that form. And I've seen that since th- that shift happened in me, the outer forms can be whatever they may. Right. Does that logic extend to um, forms in uh, in the context of deities? So you know we're talking about God, and then and then we have forms. We have forms of 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 the Godhead. You know we have, especially in the Hindu pantheon, we have many forms. And in the tradition, they're said to be you know there's a there's a formless and a formed um, aspect of those deities, the nirgun and the sagun qualities. Um, so in in the context of relating to the form of a deity how does this um logic work are we are are we encouraged to not get attached to the form because it's pointing toward the formless or is there is there you know i was talking to the reason i'm asking this question i was talking to a bhakti recently and there is a you know there's a form of the godhead and and it's a very it's not you know, in the Shaivite tradition, there, there's more like, okay, well, this is just a, a symbol pointing to a particular vibration. But then, you know, in the Krishna tradition, there's actually Krishna. Krishna is, is, a, is a real deity, has an actual form. So, um, yeah, if you could kind of tease out. You know, the way that I've uh, experienced, you know, entering the, um, as you're expressing, the, the Hindu pantheon of deities again, coming from a a Catholic upbringing, that required uh, questioning Mm -hmm. for me. It required me to to observe and look and and to understand what, in fact, I was feeling. So I recall this moment where... um, you know, in the Iyengar tradition, we called it we call it Adhamukha Virasana, mm-hmm. you know, downward facing hero's pose. And in many um, 
Hatha yoga classes, they'll say child's pose, yeah. right? Uh, I recall being in that shape. And the forehead is on the floor. The head is below the heart. The back is open and exposed. And I recall having this experience in that shape of humility. Mm-hmm. That the shape itself created a quietness in my brain where the thoughts just became, you know, really like background. And I was just in this sensation of feeling my back breathing and my mind quiet and having this extraordinary feeling in my chest where the this humility or softness felt very, very warm and very comforting. Now, one could look at that shape and say that it's a surrendering pose, that there would be something subservient about it. Your head is down, your back is exposed. But what it did was it just awakened this very particular quality of mm. humility. Mm. And when I rose to sit again on my heels, there was this sense of expansion and, and, and real like power mm. and connectedness as I sat up in the virasana, in the hero's pose. So for me, we give that a name. We say virasana, vira. It is the shape of the hero. Mm. Or we're faced down, and it's the adhamukha, the downward facing. And in that shape, there is humility. So both this quality mm. is of strength and humility. Mm-hmm. I experience deities. I experience deities in the temples in India that I step into, the depictions of Lakshmi, of Ganesha, of Saraswati, I experience them as qualitative mm-hmm. impressions, yeah. mythological expressions, mm-hmm. so that I can reflect upon how those qualities reside in me. Mm-hmm. And each of those deities also has mantras, uh, sounds and vibrations associated with them. And when you chant those mantras, there is a movement, of a, a, an awakening inside of the qualitative mm-hmm. aspect yeah. of those forms. So again, for me, the forms are there to support Mm -hmm. the experience of divinity Mm -hmm. within. Yeah. Wow, that was such an an amazing um, way of articulating the relationship to deities and something that really resonates with me. So thank you for, for sharing that. 
Um, I want to shift gears a little bit now. And um, I want to ask you a question about um, community. So, you know, I take your class and one, one aspect about your class is that it, there's a, there's a, there's a very lovely community around your classes and you have, you know, regulars that come to your class every week and, and it's really a, a special quality to the experience of taking class with you, this, this wonderful group of people. And, um, and we had talked on the phone recently and we were mentioning, you know, sort of in passing about the movement away from, or not necessarily away from, but, uh, often the, the experience of yoga class is now being augmented by a very the, the very strong presence of online classes and so some people are are seeking out online classes perhaps instead of 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 taking classes in an actual studio which you know obviously um leads to a more isolated experience so i'm curious what your thoughts are about this i know you have a, a, some opinions about it um do you think this is problematic? Um, what do you think the effects are of this move away from the the kind of brick and mortar experience of the practice? Uh, I think it's a really um, it's a very good and very important question. And I was thinking back to some of the earlier questions in this interview, and one of the things that you know that I spoke about in relationship to to my teachers mm-hmm. is being seen, mm-hmm. and that. It is an aspect of an online class that is lost, mm-hmm. right? Because if the student is in their living room and they're able to move along with, you know, with the instruction, their practice is not seen. Mm-hmm. Now, as I'm saying that, uh, what I... I, I had this, I just, I have to share this. I had this awesome experience um, about a month and a half or so ago. I had brought home from Pune the last time I was there um, an audio recording of one of Gita's classes. So I'm here in my studio and I put it on and I'm, and I'm doing the practice. And at one moment in the practice... She and this was taught live, and mm-hmm. this is a recording from a live class. But in one moment, as I'm sitting there practicing, she very sharply says, "Where are you looking?" <laughs> now, it's very possible she was saying that to the student that was mm. standing right in front of her. <laughs> but here in my studio, I was caught. I was like. Wow, I wasn't looking <laughs> in the right place. I mean, my mind had wandered. Mm-hmm. And it was this awesome moment for me because I thought, she's here. Mm-hmm. She just saw me. And this is a pre recorded class, and <laughs> I'm here in my practice space in Brooklyn, and I got caught, you know? <laughs> so there's this aspect that I'm also. Um, becoming, I would say, more comfortable with uh, offering this interview and n- not even knowing who may be out there to hear us having this conversation about things that are quite personal and private and wanting to share them because 
there is a journey mm-hmm. here and everyone is out there on their own journey and they're accessing yoga in whatever way they can and is available to them. So I feel like the online world that we're able to tap into now has made yoga accessible. Mm -hmm. It's made it convenient. For some, it has allowed them to do it with the resources that they have. And it is so important that the door is open Mm -hmm. in whatever way it can be for anyone who is seeking yoga to step through. Mm -hmm. So I am embracing the world of online content in a way that I actually feel like, wow, I'm growing up, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm going to a new place Mm -hmm. and I am getting really excited about the uh, potential, even in my own teaching to reach people in new ways. And what I also share is like, let's say I'm asked for a recommendation of a teacher, which I'm often asked. You know, my, I have a friend, and she lives in um, Hell's Kitchen, and she wants to um, start yoga. Do you have any recommendations of teachers in the area? And there's this part of me that says, what area are you speaking about, like in the area of, of Hell's Kitchen? And I, and I think to myself some of the best teachers in the world are right here. Mm -hmm. But what was driving that question was convenience. Mm -hmm. And being able to have it a few steps outside the door. Mm -hmm. Now that's the part that kind of gets me at my (laughs) core because there is some effort required. Mm -hmm to find the teacher who will see you and to go to that which is of a quality that has, you know, a, a, a solid foundation so that when you have the ability to invest, to make an investment in your study, in your education, even if you don't know anything about your study or your education and you're investing in your health because you think yoga will be good for you, be willing to make the effort to go towards that which is beneficial Mm -hmm. and do some of that research Mm -hmm. and look out there to find that you're going to get the best that's there. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of sharing now in a way that people and students that I have are on the other side of the world could hear us or have a class online or have an audio class. And at the same time, if you expect that yoga is going to come to your living room, Mm -hmm. then there is Uh, another question that I would ask and that would simply be, you know, why are you doing this? What is the purpose? And, and, and let your choices answer that Mm -hmm. purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it also seems like, you know, there, 
there will be people that will be content, you know, perhaps forever to to simply do yoga in the context of their living room. But there's also a, a, a huge amount of people that are going to not be satisfied simply with that relationship and are going to seek teachers out. I mean, that was how I found my I think, teacher. Yes, I think that's actually what you're bringing up, I think, is, is perfect because it's a it's a maturing mm-hmm. in. And the, the great thing about a seeker is that, you know, you you have that 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 burning inside. And yeah. so you're going to you're going to get yourself there in whatever steps, stages, time you know, and that, it might take a few it, yes. years because yes. the seeds take time to germinate. But, yes. uh, you know, I, I, I feel like with one of my really key teachers in my life, I mean, I found him online and I listened to one of his talks and I was like, who is this man? And it just like blew me away to hear um, just what felt like a very deep, you know, speaking from a very deep experiential place. And so I was like, I have to be in the presence of this teacher. And I feel like there is there's a point for every true seeker where you feel that calling to go to go and and to seek out that teacher if you know if you're god you know um if you have you know the the resources to get there hopefully um so yeah so hopefully that's what people will will experience is this is, is this calling to move past simply the 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 digital and and to access the personal so I want to ask you a couple questions before we start to wrap things up um, about India. And I know you spent a lot of time in yeah, India. Yeah, one of my <laughs> favorite subjects. Yeah. You've lived there for, um, you lived there for many years. How, how many years Actually, did you live there? Actually, um, I've, I've uh, I believe now it's 12 trips. But over the course of the last um, 16 years, so mm-hmm. my first trip was in the year 2000, mm-hmm. I've lived there in a total of three years. If you added mm. up all the mm. months and mm-hmm. times that I've spent there, it's um, it's just about three years. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. So um, the questions that I have are a little bit, um, I don't know if they're controversial, maybe provocative, but but I, you know, in and I haven't been to India, and I'm very eager to go, and, uh, and, I, and I expect it to be a really rich experience when I do. But one thing that I've really been struck by is for the, pe- the people that do go to India, there oftentimes is the split between people who are very much affronted and, 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 and concerned about the, the radical poverty that's there. And then there are people who come back, and this is a very, you know, maybe a general distinction, but then there are people who come back with, with this kind of deep um, and, I don't want to say uncritical, but but definitely the emphasis is on the spiritual abundance. So how do we um, reconcile those of us who do sort of look to India with a certain spiritual curiosity? How do we reconcile um, the abundance of spiritual life with the very real issue of poverty? You know, it seems like, and, and then the question that always, that arrives out of this, I think, is the question, does spiritual practice... Um, necessarily lead to social progress Mm. the the word that just came to mind is dharma and I don't know why as I was listening to you um, what was coming up and um, for those of you that are 
listening to our podcast today, from where we're sitting now, we have a view of New York City. Mm-hmm. And as, as I look out on this city that is New York City, there is a, a boldness, <laughs> you know, in the skyline of New York City. There is a uh, boldness, a strength, a, a sense of um, abundance of, of buildings uh, m- equal to what then becomes a very small amount of space <laughs> for the individual. And the buildings themselves are you know, pointing upwards. They just vertically. It's like the culture here is about vertically Mm. getting more. Yeah. Right? And what happens to me when I go to India is that everything is spread out. Mm -hmm. It's like there is this feeling of an endless sky and land and an environment where, and I say this spreading out, it's really, it happens for me in my mind. There is a, a quietness that comes, that that vertical climb that is in us when we're in a city where we kind of, you know, we put our boots on and and... And our jeans, you know, boots and jeans. It's like, you know, we, we weather the, the days and nights. And then I go to India, and it's like I wear very thin cotton and sandals. Mm. And who I am inside my own skin changes. Mm. I don't necessarily feel well, I'm going to change the moment I get to India, but the environment envelops me. Mm-hmm. The, the quality of the air and the smell, the quality of the heat and the dust, the, the pilgrimage itself and traveling to a place where something inside of me rests. I can't... Um, in my own being, I can't reconcile the differences in my experience of how I sort of prepare myself for a day in New York versus how I wake up and move through my day in India. What I will say is that this city, New York City, it has a dharma. Mm-hmm. And that in my experience, the dharma of this city is make money mm-hmm. and invent mm-hmm. and network and create and be the best. And it's, that is its goal, right? It, it, it constantly moves in that direction. That's not what I feel when I land in India. Like, it doesn't feel like that's the nature of that land. It doesn't feel like it's the dharma of that land. All of India is, you know, operating and there's businesses and people are earning money. And 
on every street corner there is a puja or a temple or someone ringing a bell or the sound of mantras. Like the culture itself is holding, perhaps for the entire planet, the spiritual heart. <laughs> we can't, I can't reconcile the abundance of material wealth that we have in the United States mm -hmm. um, versus the abundance of spiritual wealth that India has. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that when I move between these two places, it allows me to, to, to constantly remember, you know, where I want to reside inside myself. Mm -hmm. So, so would you say then that seeing the looking at when when we're seeing this um, deep poverty, not that it's not there, but there's a certain way in which when we are emphasizing the deep poverty of, of India, we're seeing India through our own um, like. Uh, capitalist abundance or or our own privilege in a certain sense well i think you have to i think you ha face value you know when you look at uh the way in which people um live in india of all different socioeconomic backgrounds there we are seeing it through our own lens we can't not see it through mm -hmm. our own lens mm -hmm. i mean if we grew up here in America, most of us have grown up with running water. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, how else how else are you going to see it? We, we have never had to uh, provide those things for ourselves or have been confronted. I'm not saying I'm making a generalization, but certainly I know <laughs> that the way that I grew up, we didn't think about the fact that you would turn on a faucet and water was going to come yeah, out yeah. or you were going to, you could take a shower every day and, and easily, or you, you know, just turn on the stove and there's fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't grow up concerning ourselves or even to live in a reality where that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So, it becomes then very challenging to go to parts of the world, mm -hmm. India and many other parts of the world, where that's not what's happening. <laughs> so the thing that India has done uh, for, you know, hundreds of years, in, in my own knowledge, is that there's always been an abundance of extraordinary resources. I mean, craftsmanship, textiles, uh, carvings, mm. art. You know, there is, there is so much abundance there and society and the way that people worked and were trained was in... Um, in a family and in a way that a tradition was passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. 
that when when one was born into a family with a particular name, that family carried on a very particular dharma within the culture, within mm-hmm. the community. We have not grown, grown up in a society where our last name dictated the kind of work we would do in our mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. What we would do in our life became a decision you know we were of our own mm-hmm. and that there are a way for us to find opportunities to do those things that we wanted to do here so i feel like it's when i go to india i have such deep respect for the place that has shown me myself in a way that i would have not known Mm-hmm. without it. Mm. So then do you think that there's a way in which expecting India to realize certain levels of material wealth that we have in the Western world is to, in a sense, impose a different dharma on on a country that has a very different dharma? Well, I feel like we're talking now about something that can enter the political, yeah. um, socioeconomic mm-hmm. realm. And, uh, and, and, you know, I don't have those answers. Right. I, I do, um, I, I do feel like the, the imposition would be to make an assumption that people in India are not happy mm-hmm. or suffering in a way that's different from people in America. And I think that unless we're willing to ask those questions, then we are only making an assumption from what we see based on our own point of view, based on the privilege that we have had and by privilege i mean yes the the resources that we've had growing up in in america mm-hmm. uh however then we start to enter a really interesting area because everyone in the world no matter where they are is seeking happiness is seeking mm-hmm. peace is seeking um contentment is wanting to have a purposeful and fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. So it would be an assumption to say that that isn't happening in a village in India where they're having to go get water mm-hmm. and make fire. I I just know for myself that there have been times in my life where I've lived with much less than what I grew up with and much less than what I've had now. And by that, I mean, you know, a place to sleep, a place to wash, a roof over my head, and not a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy in that space. So, again, I just feel like it's, um, it's, it's, it's about what we're imposing on and those people's lives. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask questions. Right. Rather than 
make assumptions. Yeah, and and you could even invert that and say perhaps that you know in in America we assume that our that we will find fulfillment through you know material possessions and perhaps that's our our own mythology and illusion uh, and in in India and there's more of a of a seem, seemingly a deeper understanding that contentment doesn't arise through the accumulation of objects that that there is, you know, that happiness comes from a, of a from the deep work that you know that we're talking about with this whole interview. Well, it's I, I just had this um, uh, memory of you know often India is referred to as Mother India, mm-hmm. right? So Mother India and Father America, do you know? Mm. Like, don't they have different roles? Yeah, and it's it's. And and are those roles associated with the qualitative um, necessity of of generating um, life and yeah. uh, understanding and and how one would be you know operating in the world? It's like um, that. I just I just had the sensation of like the the Devi the 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 goddess, mm-hmm. the the feminine power that for me is also India. Yeah. And I don't have that same experience here. Yeah. And so whether or not a country or a place has more predominantly that which is that which is nurturing and that which is um kind of caring for the soul and that which is, you know, another place that sort Practical. of teaches mm-hmm. practicality and um, rigor and, you know, momentum. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's why I kind of come back around to like dharma. Like mm-hmm. what is, what has been the focus? Because we create what that focus is. We We will constantly create that which we put our attention on Mm -hmm. and you know and and the feeling of thousands of years in india is that there is a tension on the spirit Mm -hmm. i really love that 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 explanation of mother india and father america (laughs) just because i mean because the the implication and what you see a lot is you know people wanting to kind of rebel against their, you know, American heritage and just go and, and, and live in India, or you have this idea that we've got it wrong here and they've got it right there. But what I, the spirit of what you're saying seems to be that, no, these are, these are different dharmas and they live side by side and they're both equally important. And I also hear a little bit echoed, um, in what you're saying back to the previous part of our discussion, where we were talking about the relationship between knowledge and experience, knowledge, perhaps being this more, um, paternal, energy and then the experiential which is more the soul the spirit that india represents so it's, it seems like a nice a kind of um coming full circle moment it, it 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 is and and also um and coming back to you know how people will be hearing this podcast it's like online mm-hmm. so we bring it all together in the sense that there have been advancements made 
and in the United States around how people are able to access right information all over the world wherever they are mm -hmm. and there are again so then there is this purpose that father america has <laughs> in order to in order to bring uh, a contribution to the whole mm -hmm. So if, if we recognize ourselves as, you know, that which is uh, building, inventing, creating, and, and, and providing, like, is the provider of some of the resources that can be shared by the world, like, that would be the ultimate yeah. work that we could do yeah. so that we are again connected mm -hmm. yeah and the challenge i guess is to see that we don't hoard all of yeah. that wealth that we've accumulated yeah. based on and that's a, and of course that's a political question wow this has been such a wonderful <laughs> chat and um and so to wrap things up i just want to um uh let you share a little bit about your own work and what you're doing and how people can learn more about you those that are that are that are um that are meeting you for the first time virtually meeting you for the first time um so if you want to share any programs that you have going on any retreats that you're doing sure uh i will be here in new york city through mid may mm -hmm. uh the teachers practice is a gathering uh every wednesday at kula yoga tribeca at noon and Everyone is welcome to come to that. I say everyone, what the teacher's practice is, is a practice for, you know, mature students and seekers. And so sometimes students come to that class who have been practicing yoga for 10 years and want to be in an environment or with a group of people that can go deep into these types of conversations and uh, inquiries. Um, I'm also... Uh, offering a five-day course in May, mm -hmm. and that is the enrichment practice. And I do this um, anywhere between two and four times a year, these five-day courses. The one that I have coming up that I'm um, particularly excited about is uh, on the study of the Bhagavad Gita, mm -hmm. and particularly the translation Yaneshwari. And I have a scholar joining me for that course. Uh, his name is Mark McLaughlin. So mm -hmm. applications are available for anyone who would like to participate in that five-day course this May 18th through 22nd. Um, what else right now? Then I do travel to Europe um, in the end of May, and I'll mm -hmm. be in Europe for about three weeks. Nice. This year I'll be in... Um, Cologne, Germany, mm. at the yoga conference, Germany in Cologne. And then I'll be traveling to Stockholm to work with some students that I met there last year. And and then it looks like um, possibly one other location in Europe will be on my website. Soon. TBA. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. And for anyone who's... Um, you know, can attend. I'm also going to be doing a weekend in uh, late September, early October at Omega. Wow, awesome! Yeah, so there's some, there's a lot of different things, and I'm always adding things. I I find that you know the spontaneity of 
of teaching is to be able to see what what's needed in a moment and to be able to add a workshop or mm-hmm. a, a course um, and to, you know, have people... Keep checking just, back. Yeah, just keep yeah. checking back and come when you can come. Amazing. And next year will be India. So, yes. you know, you'll keep yourself... Uh, connected by um, joining my email list because there will be um, two different trips to India in 2017. One in July? Well, July will be um, a trip that has a very limited number of spots to Ladakh. Mm -hmm. And uh, registration will open for that in just a week or so. Oh, wow. Okay. And then the... Get on top um, of that. Yeah. (laughs) And then following that trip, I, um, I hope to take a group to some of my favorite pilgrimage places in wow. Maharashtra. That sounds amazing. I really hope to get on one of those. <laughs> awesome. I would love that. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure, Nikki. Thank you so much. You're so um, welcome. And for the listeners, uh, Nikki will also be contributing to our, uh, our first online conference at Embodied Philosophy, which is called Radical Practice, and it's featuring Nikki as well as nine other speakers who will be uh, discussing the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, some will also be talking about um, the relationship between these two texts and the traditions that they that they represent. So if you um, were inspired by this talk today, I hope you'll tune in. That's April 8th through the 10th, 2016, and there will be lectures happening um, from Friday night, Saturday, throughout the day, and then on Sunday as well. Great. So thank you so much, Nikki, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. Namaste. Namaste. Hi, everybody. Well, that was our interview with Nikki Costello. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are interested in hearing more about Nikki's goings on, you can check out uh, NikkiCostello.com, N-I-K-K-I-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. And on that website, you can sign up for her email list and get updates on all of the future um, events that she spoke of there at the end. All right, until next time, friends, namaste. Shanti, shanti, shanti.